Hi, and welcome to Follow Baptist Church's weekly message podcast. My name's Luke Williams, and I'm the lead pastor, and we're thrilled to have you joining us. We hope the message today inspires you and helps you follow Jesus in your community for His glory. Here's the message. All right, our Bible reading today comes from John 13, verse 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you in an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Like this is what your life like. Try to live your life right. People really know you push your buttons like type right. This is like a movie, but it's really very lifelike. Every single night, right? Every single fight, right? I was looking at the. That's my intro from now on, right? It's uh, you're probably thinking that's the coolest intro ever to a sermon at follow, and you're probably right. Uh, Luke, with a little bit of help from Kanye. But if you don't know, that is a song called "Follow God" of Kanye West's new album, which is called "Jesus Is King." and was released on the 25th of October this year. And it sparked mixed opinions, uh, lots of commentary on Kanye's faith journey. Uh, Is it genuine? Uh, Is he going to revert back to his old life? What sort of politics is he on? Is it a fad or a flash in the pan? And I've got to say, the first I heard of Kanye's transformation was in June this year. I was over in the UK. I spent a day with Erin Watson, which is Roy and Jenny's daughter, uh, in London. And she was telling me about a friend of hers, who has ended up working at Kanye's church, the church he pastors. And she was telling Aaron about the amazing things God was doing in their midst, the way God is moving, the Holy Spirit is doing incredible things in their lives. And she relayed her own experience about how genuine and life-changing and powerful her experience had been. And I was really excited to hear from Aaron about what God was doing in that particular church. But as the album was released, 
And some of the cynical negative responses, even from Christians, in fact, shamefully, particularly amongst Christians, started to emerge. I thought it's kind of sad, isn't it, that we have so many of those kind of responses to Kanye's declaration of faith. Instead of judging whether or not Kanye has a real relationship with God, perhaps we should be rejoicing in the reality that Jesus' name is being lifted high and glorified in such a public way by such an influential person, particularly as we approach Christmas, where we too remember and celebrate the King that Kanye is declaring. If you haven't heard the album, you might be thinking to yourself, well, it's probably a little bit wishy-washy. And so let me read you the lyrics from the last song of the album, which is ambiguously named, Jesus is Lord. These are the lyrics, and they may sound familiar. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Let me read you the rest of the lyrics. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's not hidden in obscure rap language. It's not sung at double speed. In fact, that song, that particular song is slowed right down. And what we have is clearly articulated lyrics taken straight from Scripture itself. What a wonderful thing that is. And while the album is brand new, the truth definitely is not. As Christians, we have always known and believed that Jesus of Nazareth is not only Saviour and Lord, but He is King. At the start of the first Christmas story, when the angel appeared to Mary to announce that she would give birth to Jesus, this is how the angel described Him. He said, he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. About 750 years before that, the prophet Isaiah also prophesied about this same king, and this is what he said. He said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteousness and justice. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's a wonderful declaration, a wonderful prophecy of the king that we've come to know. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus is king. He is the risen, reigning king of our lives, the king of the universe, the one true king to which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. At Christmas 2019, we want to stand with Kanye and with one another to declare what his album declares, that Jesus is king. And so that's the title of our Christmas series this year. And here's a little news flash for you this morning. Jesus has not just become king because Kanye released an album. (laughs) Jesus has always been king. We see the graphic today at the bottom of the screen. It says Jesus is king since, and if you've got good eyes, you'll see there's a little symbol for eternity. He's the king since eternity. He's an amazing king. He's the king yesterday. He's the king today, and he will be the king forever. Now, I want to rebuke you this morning because I don't think you've ever been very good at hashtags. (laughs) But this Christmas, we have a hashtag for our series, and you can use this hashtag when you post sermon quotes. 
from these sermons or when you're letting someone know about our Christmas Eve service. Are you ready for it? It's going to catch on. This will change your life. Who's ready for the hashtag for the series? Here it is. Hashtag King Before Kanye. It's the hashtag for our Christmas series this year. And in this series, each week, we're going to focus on a different attribute of Jesus' kingship because as we read through the Gospels, it becomes apparent that Jesus is king, but in many ways, he's not your typical king. And so the first attribute that we're focusing on today is not what you would equate with most earthly kings. And it's the attribute that Jesus is the humble servant king. And the first thing I want to say about that this morning is that King Jesus came to serve. So different to most kings, isn't it? Who come to be served, Jesus came to serve. When you think of an earthly king, I wonder what you think of. The first thing I think of is wealth. They're sort of stinking rich, right? Filthy rich. So much money, they don't know what to do with it. I did some research this week, and the king of Thailand, who died in 2016, when he died, was the wealthiest modern-day king. And he had a value, a worth, of $43.8 billion. Well, he's gone now, he's dead, and I'm sure he didn't take it with him. But the king of Dubai is still alive, and he's worth $31.7 billion, all while the poor old queen of England is only worth $530 million which makes you wonder how can she possibly feed her corgis every week, right? (laughs) And so I often think of wealth when I think of kings or royalty. But not only do I think of wealth, I think of castles and crowns and thrones and power and pomp and procession. For you, you might think of royal weddings, which we see televised on the TV. And as we look at those weddings, we see that there is no expense spared. We just recently had Adele's wedding, our oldest daughter, And we don't have a heap of money, and so it had to be said that it was a well-thought-through, thoroughly-thought-through wedding. And we ask questions like, which family members will chip in? (laughs) What things can we have and not have? What are the ideas? What are the wishes? And what's going to happen in the real world? Can we actually afford to put this wedding on? All the sorts of questions that royals don't ever need to stress about. They have other questions for royal weddings, like, what dress will Meg Markle wear? And will it be made of gold? How will Kate wear her hair? Maybe you don't think of weddings, but maybe you think of princes and princesses being born. The world stops, doesn't it? The paparazzi gathers around and they've got their cameras out and they want to get the first photo and a little glimpse of this new little royal. What will they call this baby? How much will it weigh? Who does it look like? And maybe a better question, who really cares? But incidentally, it seems like the whole world does, right? And we can hardly get on with our everyday lives until we find out all the little details about this new royal. Everything is celebrated, and it's celebrated lavishly. When I think of kings, I think of men who can do what they want, whenever they want. They can buy what they want. They can go where they want without the limitations that we as everyday people would face. Not only that, but they have servants running around or employees organising and doing everything for them. And so really they have this life of privilege and position where they are elevated and lifted high above all of their subjects. I want to make it clear this morning as we talk about Jesus being king, that Jesus as king is lifted higher than all of those kingdoms. And over any royalty this world could ever offer, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's the name above every other name. And the Bible tells us that he is at the right hand of the Father, which literally means he's at the pinnacle of strength and ability. That's his position as king of the universe. 
And so when Jesus, the eternal king, the highest name, the one who had a kingdom that will last forever, came to earth, you would expect him to act and to be treated accordingly. That people would be gathering at his birth. That he would be born into a castle. That he would have... Uh, He would be a person that's treated with respect and dignity, that he would have every opportunity that society tells us that we deserve to have and need to have to be successful in life. You'd almost picture him barking orders to his subjects with an entourage following him around, meeting his every needs. But in Jesus' life and example, we see that he was not that sort of king. We see that demonstrated quite powerfully in today's passage, which most of you would be familiar with, with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. So let me set the scene this morning. This occasion was just before the Passover time. Jesus knew that his death on the cross was now imminent. Imagine the emotions, the inner turmoil he must have been going through at this dinner, this supper. He must have had a lot on his mind. I imagine he would be highly stressed and anxious about his impending death. In fact, we know that he was because just after this meal, he goes to the Mount of Olives where he is so overwhelmed that he literally sweats drops of blood. Not only that, that would be enough, but he also had the betrayer in his midst. We know at this meal that Judas was there, this meal that we've celebrated together this morning as family. This was a meal for his closest disciples at a most difficult time of his life, and there in the midst is Judas partaking of the bread and drinking the cup. Surely there would have been a sense of righteous anger as Jesus considered all that. You can excuse Jesus if he was a little distracted at this meal. Just this week I caught up with Pastor Mark Connor and we met at a cafe at the old Waverley Park. And it's right next to the Hawks Training Centre. So we had breakfast together and after Mark left, I stayed for a little bit longer and I was working on this message. And for the first 20 minutes or so, I was working away in my own little world. But over a period of time, I became aware of some people sitting at the table behind me and having a conversation. Eventually, I turned around and I saw sitting at the table right behind me was Sam Mitchell. Now, for those who don't know who Sam Mitchell is, Sam Mitchell is a four-time premiership player for Hawthorne, a premiership captain and a champion of the game. And so at that point, my concentration kind of shifted away from the sermon and it sort of shifted to what he was saying. And I was reflecting on what he was saying and I heard him say the word St Kilda. And so my, being a St Kilda supporter, my ears really pricked up and I zoned in on his conversation without looking, but just kind of eavesdropping. And I heard him talking about the draft. It was the draft that particular night. As he was talking about that draft that night, and he was reflecting on when he was drafted. And I heard him say that St Kilda could have taken him with pick 36. But they chose to overlook him and he said, perhaps if they had have taken me, they'd also have four premierships. (laughs) That's about when I started to cry. (laughs) Once I realised who was sitting behind me, it was very easy to be distracted. So if this sermon is no good, it's not my fault. (laughs) Sam made me do it, right? But my mind wandered, and I'm just talking about a football player at a hopeless football club sitting in a cafe. And so imagine Jesus' thoughts at this meal. If I was distracted by that, imagine what he would have been going through. You'd expect him to be distracted, right? Perhaps a little aloof and removed from the people around the table. 
maybe in a little pity party. You would excuse him if he went a little bit insular at this point and just thought about himself and pondered his own circumstances for a bit. I think we'd all understand that. But in this story, Jesus models something quite different. Here in what was the most difficult time of his earthly life, Jesus is still thinking about others. Look at what verse 1 says. It says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a powerful statement that is. So the reason Jesus wasn't focused on himself in that moment is that Jesus was living out his purpose as the humble servant king. This is what truly sets him apart from all other royalty. This is why the paparazzi weren't at his birth. This is why he didn't live in luxury. This is why he was born in a stable, not a castle. And ultimately, this is why he died the most shameful, painful, tragic death imaginable because King Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve. And so as we come back to this meal and think about this moment where Jesus washes his disciples' feet, it'd be easy to look at this story and kind of think, well, isn't that nice? It's like a random act of kindness that Jesus is doing to his disciples. But I think we need to understand, what we need to understand is for Jesus, this is not a once-off. There's nothing random about this. This is not some sort of aberration from his true kingship. This is an act of a humble servant king who came to serve and it's the consistent posture of his life. His humility started at his birth. You think about it, the eternal king of kings born in a stable. Let that sink in for a moment. The king of the universe delivered into an animal feeding trough. The lowest of lows. The most humble beginnings you could ever dream of at the birth of a king. And so when we look at his birth, we see humility at his birth. And it's no accident, I don't think, the conditions of his birth, because the conditions of his birth forecast the kind of king that he would be. Because it's not just his birth, it's also his life. It says he was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. People use that place in derogatory terms. They would say, could anything good come from Nazareth? Our equivalent might be Doveton or Berwick. I love staring at the Berwick people. It's so much fun. Can anything good come out of Berwick? Well, yes. Look around today. There's many great people here today from Berwick. Could anything good come from Nazareth? The implication is no. Nothing good comes from that place. This is where Jesus was raised. He was born in a humble stable. He was raised in a poor area. And he lived a life of humble service. We want to see humility. We can look to his birth, but we can also look to his life. We see his humble servant heart in the way he loved and served the most vulnerable people. The outcasts, the rejected, the despised, and the unclean. The way he cared for his disciples. We see his humility and his service in the truth he taught in his words. And so it's not just in his birth, it's not just in his life, but it's also seen most powerfully in his death. Thomas Aquinas once said, if you're looking for an example of humility, look at the cross. In Philippians 2, it says that he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. So we read through the Gospels, we encounter a new kind of king who through his birth, his life and his death was laying a pattern for the life of self-denial and humble, self-sacrificial discipleship that he invites us to step into. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, one of my favourite verses. I like it so much I had it tattooed on my wrists. It says, whoever wants to be my disciple, listen to this next bit, must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me daily. Jesus came to serve. As we ponder afresh the Christmas story and the birth of Christ, an important thing for us to remember is why he came. King Jesus came to serve. But secondly, he also came to model kingdom life. You see, all kingdoms have a king. They have a unique way of operation. They have a value set and they have a culture. And you and I as followers of Christ are part of his kingdom. And in many ways, the kingdom of God is a countercultural kingdom. It's an inside out, it's an upside down kind of a kingdom that's so different to what we rub up against every single day in this world. We're immersed in this world. And in many ways, we're being marinated in the values, marinated in the values that it holds dear. But as disciples, we are meant to be in this world, but not of this world. That's why it's so important that we come back to the person of Jesus and to the Word of God to no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so when it comes to kingdom culture, it is most powerfully shaped by the king. Culture comes from the king. I think we see this throughout history. You see a good king in place, you often see a healthy culture. You see a bad king in place and evil things start to happen. And so an evil king equals a destructive kingdom. But a righteous king often equals a healthy, thriving kingdom. I think a great example of this can be seen in the book of Kings, right? We all know that book with all these different kings and all the hopes and experiences of God's people, they either rose or fell apart on the leadership of the king. As we look at the introductions of each king in that particular book of the Bible, in the biblical narrative, at the start of their story, it would provide a little snapshot, which was a preview into what that kingdom would be like under their leadership. And there were two phrases that were used over and over again. When there was a good king, it said, at the start of the story, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so as soon as you read that, you knew that the next part of the story was going to be good. Some good stuff was going to happen in the kingdom. But if you saw this next statement, which was the more common one, It referred to bad kings, and it said he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And you know, as soon as you read that sentence, you're about to read a train wreck of a kingdom, a kingdom that walked away from the things of God, and it was defined by those little statements. And after you see that introductory statement, the following accounts and chapters would show the outworking of the leadership of that king. And so when Jesus came and announced that the kingdom of God was in our midst, That was significant. And it becomes very clear in the gospel that he is the king of that kingdom. And so his life models for us the kingdom values that we see in his life. And it reminds us of who we should be imitating and how we should be living. This is one of the reasons why Jesus washing his disciples' feet is so profound. It's so much more than just a random act of kindness. It's an example for us to follow. Jesus says as much. In verse 12, after washing his disciples' feet, he says, Do you understand what I have done for you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, washing feet was a key part of ancient hospitality in Jesus' day. Hands up if you're happy that things have changed over the years. So glad that I don't have to wash your feet when you arrive and you don't have to wash mine. People often talk about getting a foot massage, don't they? Like it's some sort of luxurious treat. I couldn't think of anything worse, personally. I don't want anybody to see my feet, let alone touch them. And that's only for family, but fortunately for you, you're family, right? Family, right? There you go. So you get to see my feet. It's a moment of vulnerability. I feel like I'm being ridiculed here. putting myself out there, you know, vulnerability and authenticity is the currency of leadership and here I am before you and you're laughing at my feet. I feel very offended. For those who are listening on this podcast and can't see the photo, all I can say is be very grateful. <laughs> I told you recently that Kim fell in love with me at first sight and whether that's true or not, uh, what is true is that when she saw my feet, then she really knew. <laughs> this guy's the one. I don't know whether it's the bent, twisted toes bent, twisted toes or the deformed look or the little clumps of black hair, I'm not sure. But she just knew when she saw those feet, this guy is the one, unique, special, lovable. And let's remove that photo because it's nearly lunchtime. (laughs) For some people, a foot massage is a nice treat or a luxury, but try and imagine the feet of Middle Eastern men who walk miles every day in the dirt and dust with sandals on. Have you ever worn shoes without socks on and then you take them off? It's not pretty, is it? (laughs) There's blackness all over them and they absolutely stink. And so in those days, imagine the the sandals of these men. It would have been dirt and sweat and blood and stench. And you might not find the idea of washing my feet as appealing, but I have two showers a day. And so in comparison to the feet of the disciples, washing my feet would be a joy. And so form a line after the service if you're interested. But in Jesus' time, it was a dirty job that was delegated to the servants in a household. It was below the guests, and it was certainly below the guest of honour to wash someone's feet. And yet here's Jesus, the eternal King of Kings, the guest of honour, the leader of these disciples, stooping down in the dust to wash the filthy, dirty, smelly feet of his disciples. And what blows me away and what really hit me as I reread this passage this week is that he does all of this knowing exactly very well who he was. Look at verse 3. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal. How powerful was that? He knew who he was. And yet he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
Jesus knew who he was. He knows he's in a position of power. He knows he's the leader. He knows he's the one they were looking to. He knows that he's the eternal king. He knows that he has authority. He's under no illusions about who he really is. And from that knowledge, he gets up from the meal. Knowing his place in the room, Jesus got up from the meal. He stood to his feet. He left the comfort of his seat. He laid aside the enjoyment of the meal. He inconvenienced himself for the sake of others and he forfeited his position of authority to serve. And as he did, he was modelling to us how we should live our lives as well. And while washing feet is no longer a cultural expectation in our days, serving one another always will be because that's what Jesus modelled for us. And so I wonder when people in our lives encounter us as kingdom people, will they think of us as people as people who stood up? People who stood up even when it was inconvenient. People who took a stand against injustice. A community who stood up for truth. A community who live to serve. Because if it's good enough for Jesus, then it's certainly good enough for us. And really the only hope of a decreasing self is an increase in Christ in our lives. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who belong to the family of believers. As members of the countercultural kingdom of God, we should be less concerned with comfort less obsessed with position, less likely to be proud and more inclined to humbly serve, even to the point of inconvenience and self-sacrifice. To be honest, I think this is one of the most significant ways that we've been able to have an impact in this local community. Overall, Follow has been a group of Jesus followers who have demonstrated a willingness to serve. One of my favourite verses in all the scripture is found in Proverbs. Chapter 18, verse 16, it says this, A gift opens the way for the giver and ushers them into the presence of the great. I love that verse. It's a powerful verse. I think as we've stepped out and served at a park two nights a week at Burke Park with a food van, the gift has opened up opportunities into people's lives. As we've served at a breakfast club, as we've run a mainly music play group, as there's been a young mums group in our church, as People from our church have gone on red frogs and served schoolies at a pretty wild time of life. And as we've knocked on doors and welcomed new people to the area, the door has been opened to us as a church. And I don't think we should ever take this for granted, that the local council have sought us out to work alongside them to meet the needs of this community. The schools have literally opened their doors and said, come on in, and allowed us to minister to the staff and the students and the parents of those kids that the Timbertop Housing Estate have invited us to partner with them for a Christmas celebration where we get to sing about Jesus. This week, Coles Lakeside just rang me out of the blue and said, I heard that you guys are helping with the hampers. We want to donate food to put in hampers for those in need at Christmas. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That God has opened doors. Follow has been a faithful, non-anxious presence in our community. We've built trust and credibility through our service and it has happened as we've been willing to serve. 
And Proverbs 18, 16 has been fulfilled in our midst. The gift has opened a way for the giver and has ushered us into the presence of the great. The great, of course, being Jesus the King. Who is at work in us and in this community to which he has called us to serve. If we are to have a kingdom culture, we won't see service as a random act of kindness, but as a consistent way of life. We say that again. If we're going to have a kingdom culture in this church, we won't see service as a random act of kindness, but as a consistent way of life. If followers going to have a kingdom culture, we need to model ourselves off the king. So church, I want to ask you this morning, how are we doing corporately and individually when it comes to serving? You know, at Christmas lunch, you're going to have a very practical opportunity to put this into practice, to stand up from the table, to serve the food, to wash the dishes, or just to talk to that relative who drives you a bit batty. You've got an opportunity to represent the king at Christmas lunch. You've got an opportunity to do it in your workplace. If I was to walk into your workplace this week, and do a straw poll amongst all the employees in that place and say, for Sanjeev Sakantha, you're his workmates, you're his colleagues, is Sanjeev a servant? I know the answer would be yes. But that's probably a bad example because we all know he's a servant. But what about Gary Salomons or what about uh, anyone else in this room? If I was to go into your workplace and do a straw poll and the question was, is that person a servant in their workplace, would people straight away identify you as that person? Or not? What about in your family? What about in your friendship circle? Do people see you as someone who is quick to serve? What about in our local community? Are we known as people who serve? What about in your school, your university? Wherever you go, you're on mission. And so do people see you representing the king as someone who is humble and someone who serves? I've been so blessed to be part of a community like this who has been quick to serve. But if we're honest, a lot of the time it doesn't come naturally. We can only put it down to a work of the Holy Spirit because left to our own devices, we don't gravitate towards others. We gravitate and drift towards ourselves. And so the journey of discipleship is to ruthlessly eliminate our obsession with self by asking God to replace it with a hunger to serve him and others, guided by the Holy Spirit, modelled on our Saviour, because when we do, we engage in kingdom life as we represent the King. This is where the washing of the feet was even more significant than simply being an act of service or a model to follow. It's a symbolic act of both humble service but also cleansing that reminds us that Jesus, King Jesus, came to wash us clean. Wash us clean of our selfishness, of our propensity for greed and of ourselves. Jesus came to wash us clean. You see, sin turns us into self, but Jesus turns us inside out so that our spirit-filled default position is serving not ourselves but the world. This is why we need to be cleansed by Jesus because sin has tainted us and separated us from a God who is holy. While I'm being vulnerable this morning, let me tell you something else about myself. I'm a shower freak. I love showers. I have a minimum of two a day. Every single day, wife tells me off for wasting water. But I love the feeling of standing in a shower 
with the scalding hot water running over me and that feeling that the dirt and sweat and stuff is being washed away. And there's no better feeling than, than getting out of the shower knowing that you're clean and fresh. But I lie, there is a greater feeling. Because nothing compares to the feeling of knowing that you've been washed clean by King Jesus. To know you're forgiven and all the blackness and dirt and sin that taints our lives has been washed away by his blood spilt at Calvary. To know that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we will find mercy and grace in our time of need. To know for sure that we're in relationship with God through Christ, but it only happens by putting our faith in him. We won't ever live under the rule of the king by the values of the kingdom unless we are first washed clean by Jesus himself. In verse 8 of today's passage, Jesus says to the disciples, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. My question to you this morning as we finish up, I want you to listen to this question because it's the most important question that you'll ever be asked in life. Your answer is what your eternal destiny hinges on. The question I want to ask you this morning is this. Have you been washed clean by the king? Maybe this morning you're here and you think, well, I've made big mistakes in my life. Maybe you doubt that God could ever love you because of those things. Maybe you carry with you a sense of regret and shame and brokenness. Well, let me tell you something this morning. We're all in the same boat. None of us have got anything of worth to bring before the cross that could ever earn our salvation. All we have to offer to God is our brokenness and sin. But when we bring that before the cross of Christ and we accept what he did for us on the cross, a divine exchange takes place where all our sin is placed on him and nailed to the cross with him. And in exchange, he hands us his righteousness. And as we stand before God the Father, he no longer sees our sin and brokenness, but he sees someone who is holy, righteous, chosen, forgiven, and clean. Only Jesus makes that possible. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. But, love that word, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the great message of the gospel. It's the great hope of humanity. It's all possible because Jesus left the glory of heaven and entered into the brokenness of creation as the humble king who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for us. Can I propose this morning that the only appropriate response to his sacrifice is to lay our lives down in return as an act of worship to God and as an act of love to the world. This is why Christmas is such a powerful time of celebration. We stop and we remember his birth. But his birth can never be separated from his life, his death, his resurrection, and his promises for the future. Today we stand in unity with Kanye and with one another to declare this Christmas time that Christ is King. He's the humble king who came to serve. He's the king who came to model kingdom life. And he's the king who came to wash us clean. 
Thanks for joining us for our weekly message. If you're in the southeast area of Melbourne, we'd love for you to join us at our Sunday morning service. All the details can be found on our website at follow.church or you can find us on social media at follow Baptist Church.